Welcome back to the courtroom of current events here on Peter's Proffer. We have got a new episode today. We are going to go through some tough decisions that everybody basically has to make in their lives with when their loved ones get older. We've got a uh, special guest who's an expert in this area. So thanks for listening. And if you want to hit us up with any other questions or comments on social media, it's at Tragos Law. Our website is TragosLaw.com. And uh, thanks for being with us. Welcome back to the podcast today. We've got a guest with us. Uh, His name is Steve Hitchcock. I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about what he does. But today's topic is going to be on what to do when your loved ones or family friends get into the later stages of life and there are decisions that you have to make that you've never made before and you don't know really how to navigate the waters or what those waters even look like. I've also got Pete Sardis here with me in our firm. He handles a lot of our nursing home and ALF abuse cases. So we're just going to kind of go down the line and talk about what we have to deal with with some elderly people in our life. So first, Steve, why don't you introduce yourself and tell the uh, audience what you do. Well, good morning, and thank you for having me on today. Does it sound good? Yeah. Got a good volume? Okay. Um, again, uh, thank you, Pete. And Pete, I don't know if that's the name of your show. Sure. It sounds like a good Works. name of the show. <laughs> um, again, my name is Steve Hitchcock. I'm, I'm what's traditionally known as an elder law attorney. I, uh, I'm board certified by the Florida Bar in Elder Law, and I have a master's degree in elder law. But um, I, I like to joke with my colleagues that I'm an elder law attorney where more than half my clients are under the age of 50. Um, what I primarily do is public benefits uh, um, and planning for public benefits, Medicare, Medicaid, dis- Social Security, disability, and things of that nature, um, with a, a focus uh, uh, on um, uh, public benefits for individuals in, in long-term care facilities, assisted living facilities and nursing homes, uh, trying to uh, uh, obtain some assistance in how, uh, assistance in paying for a, a long-term care facility, either uh, through uh, the federal Medicaid program or through uh, benefits from the Veterans Administration for those veterans that would uh, qualify. Um, but that's, in a nutshell, kind of what I do and in, in, in all the legal aspects surrounding that, uh, be it uh, estate planning, um, um, incapacity planning, doing powers of attorney and, and health care surrogates and things like that. And we can discuss what all those things are uh, as we go along, I suppose. Right. So that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with what kind of decisions have to be made. Some of this has actually happened in uh, my in-laws family recently, and we're going through all the documents you need if um, there are medical issues coming up or what decisions you need to make for you know, grandmas and grandpas or parents that once they get to that stage of life and you've never thought about it before. So why don't we talk through a little bit about the documents that are necessary for children or grandchildren to have for their parents or grandparents, you know, going through medical powers of attorney and the difference between those and other powers of attorney versus, you know, like you said, setting up uh, uh, a estate plan and things like that. Sure. Um, if, well, Frankly, it's a topic that everyone should be discussing, not just in, a, in the context of someone potentially going into a, a nursing home or assisted living facility, but, uh, um, you know, I, there's the concept of you never say everybody, and right. you never say never, but in this right. case, it's more pretty much everybody should have some sort of planning put in place in the event that they become mentally unable to deal with their own affairs, right. whether they be financial decisions or medical decisions. 
um, and the documents that we can put into place to allow another person to make financial or medical decisions on your behalf in the event that uh, you have become incapacitated um, or if you're uh, merely in a rehab facility, you've had some sort of a physical injury and you're just not able physically to get out and deal with banking and deal with your bills and things like that. Uh, enabling another person through a financial power of attorney to allow them to take care of your business um, while you are convalescing, be it short-term or unfortunately in a long-term type situation like an assisted living or nursing home. So we, we definitely want to have financial powers of attorney out there for folks. Even spouses don't have the inherent ability to sign the other spouse's name on documents. Um, and, and even spouses forget that there's they, um, they most spouses have joint accounts and everything's jointly owned. So it's very easy to uh, to deal with. But there are things that a spouse cannot do on behalf of a spouse merely because they're married. And so, even spouses need powers of attorney. So would your recommendation then for people just to get that now in case something happens in the future with their spouse or their parents? Well, sure, because if you're not if you're in a position where an event has occurred and you're no longer legally of sound mind to sign these documents, uh, you've uh, kind of the, the horse has left the barn, so to speak. Okay. To use that, uh, they use that analogy. Right. Um, but the other aspect of, 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 uh, of decision-making that's very important is medical decision-making as well. And you want to have um, what's either, there's really two ways of describing it, either a healthcare power of attorney um, for medical decision making, or that's also known as a healthcare surrogate designation um, document. It's separate from your financial power of attorney. And what type of decisions can you make under that healthcare power of attorney? Well, it's very broad medical decision making authority um, dealing with doctors, hospitals, other types of medical uh, pr practitioners, assisted living facilities, etc. Uh, it also allows the healthcare surrogate document allows the uh, person helping you out to make um, decisions about long-term care, like a placement in a nursing home or an assisted living facility, and signing the documents to actually have you enter that facility. As well, um, you can uh, apply for governmental benefits as a healthcare surrogate. Okay, so when we're talking about um, these types of documents, what would somebody? How would somebody go about? having them created for them? Is that something that you draw up for them or how does it work? Well, you really want to sit down with a lawyer and go over those very specific issues as part of an overall estate plan. Okay. Um, and really so what other things would you go over then if somebody comes in and says, I just want to plan kind of for, and, and I'm just thinking about it for parents or grandparents, but if they come in and just say, I want to plan with my spouse or whatever, what type of other documents would you walk them through as part of that estate plan? Well, you want to consider how are we going to transfer our our estate or our legacy to our intended beneficiaries. Meaning a will or a trust. A will, a okay. trust, and things of that nature. And, 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 and really discussing all of these um, uh, topics we've just been talking about for the last couple minutes as part of a comprehensive estate plan for your, you and your family. So you have everything in place, basically, meaning the answering the questions that are, are going to come in everyone's life, meaning... Who's going to be making the decisions, under what circumstances, where the money's going to go, and how it's going to go from one generation to the next or one person to the next? Absolutely. Okay. Anything else besides we've got medical power of attorney, we've got financial powers of attorney, we've got 
wills and we've got trusts. Any other documents that you go through with somebody that, that comes in for those reasons? Well, we typically discuss living wills. Okay. And I really hate that term because you, you, you say living will and you automatically think, oh, last will and testament. Well, a living will has nothing to do with your property. It has to do with a, an end-of-life decision about continuing medical treatment if there's no hope of recovery. Um, the, uh, the standard being if you are um, terminal or end-stage and unable to express your wishes, do you want to continue to receive medical treatment even though there's really no hope of recovery, or do you want medical treatment to stop and you to be allowed to pass away? That document that expresses your decision under those circumstances is called a living will. Again, I don't like the term will in there, but it's the word we have to use. So right. We're stuck with it. <laughs> right. So for, for, in giving some examples of when this would come up, if grandma goes in for open heart surgery, it doesn't go as well as you planned. She comes out, she's incapacitated for a period of time, medically induced coma, whatever. If you have that medical power of attorney, that person can can make those decisions at that time, right? Of what, what she's going to do, what the next steps are going to be, if she's going to have another surgery, things like that. Yeah, let's let's kind of use a, 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 a family situation. You have grandma, in a, as you've just described, and the granddaughter is named as the surrogate or medical power of attorney. Right. That granddaughter then can make the medical decisions on behalf of grandma um, while grandma is incapacitated and, un- and unable to make those decisions. Okay, so let's say that same scenario happens, but you don't have a medical power of attorney. What happens? Well, there's what's known as the proxy statute, which is a default um, uh, pecking order list of people that are designated to make decisions um, under Florida law. Um, and it, it is it is what it is, and it's there as a, as a, as a fallback plan but you may have people that are making decisions that you would have never intended to have making decisions had you written it down on paper. And some people might not know what that is, or there may be an argument to who that person actually is, who's next in line. Absolutely. Um, if you've got three kids and every, they all have equal status to be your proxy, they they could be easily all arguing about what's the best. But thing nobody to do. ever argues with their family, so I'm sure that never comes no, up. Again. Never, never. So, so in order to avoid a lot of these issues, that's why you want to have this paperwork ahead of time. When before open heart surgery ever happens, you have all this stuff in place to where if anything happens, you're ready for it. A lot of people must not like to talk about this with you. Uh, this type of stuff, I'm sure. Most people don't like to yeah. talk about it, but it is an unfortunate reality that you, it, it's a conversation that has to. And happen. it's important. Um, as you can tell just from the, those two scenarios, how much more difficult it is when you don't have the paperwork in place and what problems could actually come. Um, okay. So let's talk about a different scenario. Let's say somebody is not incapacitated. So let's say grandpa doesn't like going to the doctor, doesn't like, you know, even finding out what the doctor has to say or ordering medicine or things like that. Can a medical power of attorney do anything in that case? Not really to be blunt with you because you, you know, if, if grandpa in your scenario has, his mental faculties, he is mentally competent to make his own decisions. Um, you know, we have a right of self-determination in this country, and, and that cannot be overridden by, yeah, let's say, you know, uh, intervention by the family or right. anything of that nature. I mean, if it is an incapacity situation where grandpa is not rational and not making rational decisions, there are options there. But if he is just obstinate, we'll just use that term, and uh, and deciding something uh, in terms of medical decision that you just don't like, well, there's really not a heck of a lot you can do to override that. So uh, 
and once he becomes incapacitated, then he's not able to sign this medical power of attorney anyways. Correct. So this all has to be done while they are not incapacitated because once that line is drawn, they're not allowed to sign for their or make their medical decisions. Well, they're also not allowed to make their decisions on signing paperwork, handing this authority over to somebody else. Correct. Okay. This is all pre-need planning. And that's the same thing with wills and trusts. Exactly. Once they're incapacitated, they can no longer change or create a will at that point. True. Okay. So um, let's next talk a little bit about ALFs and nursing homes. We're going to bring Pete in now to talk a little bit about um, what is the difference between an ALF and a nursing home? Funda- assisted li- living facility. Yeah. Assisted living facility is you know the, the long version of ALF. The fundamental difference is that an assisted living facility allows you to function on your own, although with assistance. In other words, there's nursing staff or they help you with your medication. There's somebody available. But at the end of the day, you make your own decisions and you have the right to live your life. Now, a nursing home is what we call a long-term care facility. In other words, you are being cared for all the time by nursing staff or uh, or medical staff and your decision making is somewhat curtailed uh, there's a lot of distinctions that I can make that are you know splitting hairs about but that's the basic gist yeah, what you're allowed to do what you're allowed not to do but that's the gist they are governed under different statutes in the state of Florida those statutes run honestly pretty parallel to each other in, in requirements, but that, that's your basic difference. Okay, so when talking about you know making these decisions when the time comes, obviously this one you probably shouldn't make too far in advance because things can change. But when making this decision when the time comes for a family member or a loved one that's elderly, um, what do you look for? And I know you know this by based on working on our abuse cases. Obviously, you learn a lot about these facilities and what they have to do and what they what they do properly and improperly. But you've also looked for uh, your parents for assisted living facilities and things like that. You've looked into it personally. So what, what do you look for? What can you tell people to look for when they are, you know, interviewing the staff or walking through and touring the facilities? Cause that's a really tough decision that people hate making, you know, putting mom or grandma in the nursing home. What is it that they can look for to kind of put them at ease a little bit as, as best as they can? You know, every person's going to have a different fit for them. Uh, we are all going to like something different. We're all going to be able to afford something different. And the first thing you've got to determine is what type of facility are you looking for? Is it something that is assisted, meaning that you've got some help there for grandma or grandpa? Or is it do they require something more detailed, which means they need full-time care all the time? The biggest reality is I can show you any facilities brochure, and they're beautiful. And I can take you on a guided tour, and you're going to love it. Where you really make a lot of mileage in determining what facility is good for you is to show up unexpected, to walk around and talk to some of the people that live in the facility and see how they feel about where they live, to talk to the staff and to determine, are they friendly? Are they likable? Do they like being there? Or are they there because they need a paycheck? And the majority of the abuse neglect cases that we find are in circumstances where people have no choice and they're just placed in a facility. That facility had a bed available for them. And the people that are there taking care of them don't really want to. Right. So let, let's get into a little bit um, about what you can dig in and what's actually available on the internet as far as, and, and I know you know specific websites to find this stuff, but you can actually find 
when these facilities have been sued, what they've been sued for, what they've been fined for, what problems they've had in the past, which can give you an indication about, you know, what you could be looking into in the future. It's not always going to happen again, obviously, but it's knowledge and knowledge is power. So you'd want to be able to at least find this stuff out before you make this decision. Right. The events that come out through an inspection are public record. If you go to ACA, ACHA, which is the Florida's uh, governing body for assisted living facilities and nursing homes, you can actually pick the facility that you want to investigate and you put in the name and it'll tell you every time they've been inspected, what the last inspection reports look like, have they been fined, what were the fines for? Were the fines for because there was a spoon left out in the kitchen or is the fine because somebody what's called eloped, meaning that they lost a a patient? Mm -hmm. The problem though is a lot of the big stuff, a lot of the stuff that engages in litigation does not find its way onto that website because that is not something that ACA has investigated. So beyond just looking for the website uh, and seeing what is there, it's not a bad idea to Google the place. It's not a bad idea to check the local uh, court records because, again, those are public records. Exactly. So if they've been sued in the circuit court of whatever county they're in, you just put in their name and you'll see how many times they've been sued. You can even read some of the complaints to see what the allegations are that they were sued for. Exactly. And if you go on, for example, to the the county's website and you pull up a particular facility and you see 30 or 40... uh, lawsuits against them all alleging that you know they forgot to give mom her medicine well then you know you got a problem okay uh, so we're going to jump back to steve now let's talk about how you pay for this stuff because first off it's not cheap um they can milk you dry at the end of your life and a lot of people can't even afford most of these with whatever they've saved up throughout their life so how how much are they do you know like kind of a range of what they usually cost or what the average cost is and how do these people pay for them well your average assisted living facility runs anywhere from about 3500 a month to about $6,000 a month, depending on the um, services that are actually being offered or accepted by uh, the, the resident of the, of the facility. Most have a base room and board charge um, and then add on, um, whether they call it levels or tiers or whatever, of of uh, the actual assistance being provided. So you may have a, a room and board charge of, say, $3,000 a month, and then maybe another uh, $1,500 or $2,000 a month of the add-on fees for the assistance. Um, so, and, and as Pete was saying, you'll find um, a, a wide range of, of pricing on assisted living facilities Um I, I would say that the less expensive facilities statistically or, or overall are probably lesser quality. That's just inherent in, in any industry. Right. Um, but just because something is, you know, uh, $6,000 a month does not make it a good facility. Absolutely not, right. And uh, so you, as I strongly uh, uh, suggest you do exactly what Pete was talking about and, and do your homework and don't just listen to the uh, – the intake person at the facility or the uh, the social worker at the facility whose job is to get residents. And, the salesperson. And, yeah, the salesperson. <laughs> their job is to get bodies and beds. Exactly. Um, uh, you want you want independent information, and, and Pete gave you some great advice there. The uh, a, a skilled nursing home where you are receiving essentially 24-hour-a-day nursing services um, runs anywhere from eight to $12,000 a month. On average, so a little more expensive than if you just like lived in the Ritz Carlton. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and these are generally priced 
Um, assisted living facilities are generally priced by a, a monthly fee, um, and uh, skilled nursing homes are generally priced on a daily rate. You know, $250 a day, $300 a day, $320 a day, whatever that happens to be. Um, and then they break that out into a monthly bill um, where it's an all-inclusive bill for all services that you might need and obviously uh, much more expensive. Now, how do you pay for these things? Um, one of the most common misconceptions is, well, I've got Medicare and Medicare is going to pay for this. Well, Medicare does not pay for a long-term stay, excuse me, a long-term um a long-term facility stay, um, they will pay for a little bit of rehabilitation up up to 100 days um, per event. Um, you're not guaranteed 100, but you can get up to 100 days per event for a rehabilitative stay. But if you are uh, looking at a long-term stay in an assisted living facility or a nursing home, Medicare does not pay for that. We really only have the, um, from a governmental benefit standpoint, um, the Veterans Administration offers pensions and some financial assistance, but they typically do not pay for the entire cost of care. The only program that comes close to paying um, the, uh, the entire uh, bill, especially in a long-term care nursing home, a skilled nursing home, is the Medicaid program, um, which is uh, a needs-based. You have to financially qualify for the Medicaid program. And there are lots of opportunities to assist folks in, in, in finding ways of how to qualify for Medicaid. Um, not the subject of today's conversation, but I did just want to put it out there. Uh, there are options uh, under most circumstances to find uh, governmental benefit programs, either through the VA for veterans and, and, and families of veterans or uh, under the federal Medicaid program. Um, and... Um, uh, for many folks in the um, uh, of, of, and I don't know the demographic of the listeners, but uh, um, uh, folks that are you know in their uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and are looking at you know the the wave of Alzheimer's coming and considering, well, gee, am I ever going to need to go into a long-term care facility? There is long-term care insurance out there that you can purchase, um, uh, and it uh, as with any insurance, the 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 the, the closer you are to the need, the higher the premiums are going to be if you can even get the insurance. But if you're younger and in, in fairly good health and you're concerned about these things in the future, you might have a family history or something like that, you definitely want to uh, consider long-term care insurance as an option. Okay. And yeah, we're not going to dig into exactly what you have to do to qualify for Medicaid. That could be a whole other issue. But uh, a couple questions that I've heard are uh, kind of twofold. So number one, say I have $100,000 saved. Okay, I'm not going to qualify for Medicaid, but in 10 months, that money's gone. Now, can I try to qualify for Medicaid once I'm already in that nursing home if, if they've milked all my savings away and now I have no money? Or do they kick you out? Well, two questions there. Okay. <laughs> I'll take the first one. Um, if you have $100,000, you are not qualified for Medicaid, quite frankly, Um under most circumstances, and um, if you spend that money down, let's say your nursing home is ten thousand dollars a month, you pay for ten months, and then now you're out of money. You have appropriately, quote unquote, utilized your own funds and have not disqualified yourself from Medicaid by giving your money away to your kids or anything like that. Okay. Then you could apply for Medicaid. Okay. Um, and get that assistance for the future. Um. The, the other half of that question, are they going to kick you out? Um, a nursing home is a, 
it's a business. An assisted living facility is a business. You are buying services from them, and you have a bill to pay, just like your electric bill or your water bill. Um, it's a bill. And if you don't pay your bill, their option is to evict you. Right. So, but but when you know that that's coming, you can go see a lawyer and try to set that up before your money's gone. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And that's so that what, would be the thing to do. And that's what an elder law attorney does. Exactly. So um, the last question on, on payment is, is there a way you can protect your assets when you're in a nursing home or a li- assisted living facility, meaning if you have some land that you own or some other assets that's not money in the bank, can you apply for Medicaid when your money's gone? Or do you have to basically liquidate all your assets to pay for it as long as you can if you have those assets that are attached to your name? There are lots of strategies that uh, are utilized uh, by elder law attorneys to allow an individual that does have some money remaining to shelter that money um, in such a way that it's still there and available for them but also qualify for Medicaid. And again, we can't get into all the strategies and details of that, but that is what elder law attorneys do day in and day out is help folks in that exact situation um, try to uh, maximize the um, utilization of their funds and their resources so that they can have a better quality of life and still uh, qualify for Medicaid. Um and then also, is it is one of the aspects of that creating a trust or something for you know your children or grandchildren? Is that is that something you can do, or how does Medicaid look at that? It in certain circumstances that is an option. Okay. Um, normally, giving your money to your children or grandchildren, or putting it in a trust for your children or grandchildren, disqualifies right. you from Medicaid because you've given your money away. Right. Ahead, Pete. But let me ask a question. There's a look back period. Medicaid looks back a certain amount of time. So discuss for us what you can do proactively to avoid being in that position. If you've already got the trust created, meaning then something happens in your life that makes you go into a a, a nursing home, are they going to look back and say, well, too bad you already created that trust? Or is that okay since you didn't know you were going to have to be in that nursing home? It depends. Okay. The great the lawyer's answer is always it depends. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but that's like, you know, one of our clients yeah. gets sued and then all of a sudden everything, he transfers everything to his wife. Well, you can't necessarily protect yourself like that. But if, if you give everything to your wife and then you get sued two years later, well, that's fine because it was already transferred prior to you knowing that you got sued. Is it similar to that or how does it work? It's similar, but Medicaid looks has a very strict window of five years. It's because they're the government. Yeah, they're the government. They make, <laughs> they make their own rules exactly. and we have to jump through their hoops. Exactly. <laughs> we can't create the hoops ourselves. Right. Um, Medicaid looks five years. Okay. So if you've given your money away today, if, if you need nursing home services and, and you're asking Medicaid to pay for them and it is more than five years later, they ignore the fact you gave money away. But if it was the two-year window that you've just discussed, let's say you you gave your you know you gave a hundred thousand dollars to your son two and a half years ago, and now you're asking Medicaid to help pay for your your long-term care, they are going to disqualify you, saying you gave away your assets within our look-back period right. of five years. You have a problem, and you we are not going to help you pay for your nursing home. Which is just another kind of reason that what we're talking about. It seems like it's a lot further off for all of us than it actually is these conversations that you should have with an elder attorney because they can explain it and you can set yourself up now creating trust and whatever so that 
when the time comes, that look back's not going to affect you and you can still set up your family with whatever it is that you've worked for throughout your life. So there are better ways to set it up the earlier you can get in and talk to an elder law attorney about these issues. Absolutely. So along the lines of nursing home, we're going to finish out with uh, not a fun topic, but we'll bring Pete back in. So when these harsh realities that, that become real when you have someone in a nursing home and you think that there might be some kind of neglect or abuse going on, tell the listeners basically what can you look for that can be an indication that your loved one has either been abused or neglected in a way that is not normal. Because a lot of times when we put our grandma or grandpa in, that's the first person we ever know that's in a nursing home. So we don't know how it's supposed to run. So what do you look for? You know, you have to look for the obvious things. In other words, if you go to visit your loved one and they have bumps, bruises, lacerations, cuts, you should be concerned about that, obviously. There are more subtle signs about things that people don't always recognize but are very important. I'll give you the best example that I can. If you know grandpa, and grandpa gets up every day and combs whatever hair he has left, and he shaves, and he showers, and he puts on his clothes, and that he's just a neat and cared for person. And then you go to visit him at the facility, and you notice that, well, he doesn't comb his hair anymore, he's not shaving anymore, he's dirty. There are some, That is a sign of possible trouble because normally when people are abused or neglected, they either act out and they communicate with their loved ones or they feel embarrassed about the situation and they, uh, they become introverted. And as opposed to saying, I'm being beaten or they're refusing to give me food, people will just revert back because they don't want to cause trouble because they recognize their care is in the hands of that person that may be, able, may, may be in a position to do them harm. So always look for change in personality, change in mood. If someone has um, you know, strong likes, for example, they play checkers or they, they like to play board games, all of a sudden they've stopped liking to do that. You need to start uh, taking consideration that there may be a problem. So what do you do? Well, and also just another thing is regression. A lot of things with these like Alzheimer's, dementia, whatever, they may be getting better and better and better and they're going to therapy. That's why they're there. So obviously you realize they're going to have those issues. But sometimes we've seen within a week, somebody regresses six months back because of some abuse that's going on. So that can be an indicator too, is them regressing back, losing everything they've been working for with whatever their their therapy is that they're doing. Absolutely. And you realize sometimes people may not be therapeutic. In other words, they're not getting the... um the medication or the physical therapy they're supposed to be getting and you just don't know because you're not there all the time the biggest thing um, with nursing homes specifically is that they deal with a lot of people and there's a lot of that's why it can be neglect not necessarily abuse and the biggest neglect or abuse uh, and, and Steve's writing it down he's absolutely right is over medication it is far easier to deal with grandpa when he is just sitting in his chair doing nothing. And you've got to be conscious. Somebody, you walk in and they're lethargic. And they've never been lethargic before. Uh, you know, take note. What I tell a lot of our clients is you can't become a systemic person. In other words, you can't make your visits every Saturday from 8 until 10. You can't be that person that only right. shows up on those days. Because they'll start to figure that they out. They know. The nursing staff knows who has a lot of visitors. The nursing staff knows who is planned and who just has random people that come in. And I promise you, the people that have family members and loved ones that visit them randomly and a lot, more often fare better. Can I jump in there? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and back to what we talked about with healthcare surrogates and such, 
Um, if you are the healthcare surrogate, you have the right to see the medical records. You have the right. That's to exactly what I was going to ask. How do you get the medical records to see if they're even making nurses notes or if they're documenting this fall or these bruises or whatever? Well, I'll let Pete speak to that because that's kind of the litigation side right, of things. Exactly. But, but uh, I was going to say, um, participate in the care plan meetings. Go, you know, uh, they're supposed to have quarterly care plan meetings where the entire uh, staff meets and discusses grandpa's situation. You have every right to participate in that care plan meeting and have your voice heard and hear what they have to say and see the records. Um, you know, the um, people inherently don't want to um, be the squeaky wheel, yeah. so to speak. But in this type of a situation, you want to be a really, you want to be a screaming wheel. You don't want to just be squeaky. Because they get the grease. That's, exactly, that's what exactly. That and, saying is there if, for a reason. And if they know that they're, you know, if the staff know that they're being overseen and they're, you know, your eyes are on them, they're going to do a better job of taking care of grandpa. All right, Pete, let's finish with, so what do you look for once you get the medical records? Well, first of all, presuming that you have the right to get the medical records right. because you have the appropriate documentation. Um, you go through the medical records and you look for the obvious. For example, you see that grandma or grandpa has bruises all over the one side of their body. So you look at the medical records and the nursing notes and do you see where there was a fall? Do you see where there's an event that corroborates to whatever that injury looks like? Does it appear as if it was identified, documented? Did somebody call the nurse, the doctor, the family? Did those things happen? Because let's be real. Every time somebody falls at a nursing home, it's not abuse or neglect. Um, because that's just part of drinking. Right, if they fall, they call them, they get them to the hospital. I mean, they, they right. did. these people are fall risks. Sure. That's the point. The key, though, is... But if they fall and somebody finds them, they have no idea how they fall, and they just put them back in bed, and next day they're they're paralyzed from the waist down and their neck's all black and blue, well, that's a problem, right. obviously. Which, frankly, happens a lot. Exactly. Uh, and the reality is you have to um, make record of whatever occurs in somebody's care, or uh, you have to make record of any uh, abnormalities in their day. If they're not taking their medication, if they fell, if they're lethargic, if they're, if they're not functioning. The thing that I'm seeing now, especially with the onset of electronic medical records, is you will see, you'll ask for medical records for your, your loved one, and you'll see, you know, a, you'll get a book. You'll get, you know, two phone books of medical records. But then you got to look closely at them, and you realize that a lot of times electronic medical records that are automatically generated, is it really possible that every note in every day is the exact same? I, I don't think so. Yeah, exactly. And and just to tie it all together. So in order to hire a lawyer and deal with this issue, if you feel like your loved one's getting neglected or abused, having these powers of attorney is of the utmost importance. So having them earlier or sooner rather than later before you think you need them to get these worked on by an elder law attorney can make all the difference in the world going forward in your elderly loved one's life, making these types of decisions when issues are coming up when they're later or when they're later in life and can't deal with them themselves. So, Steve, thanks so much for coming on. Pete, thanks for being here. Um, it was fun. We'll have to do it again. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, gentlemen. All right. <laughs>